Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If a Martian came down to Earth today and said, I have this great new product that's going to kill half a million people a year, that's going to addict kids and ruin their lives, that's going to be preferentially marketed to the most vulnerable in the population, let's go do it. Uh, People would probably say, are you out of your mind? Hey, don't look now, but the Trump FDA blindsided tobacco companies and Wall Street traders by targeting nicotine levels in cigarettes to curb their addictiveness and ostensibly to push smokers to reduce risk alternatives. News of which sent the stocks of big tobacco spiraling. Mind you, these have been some of the best performing shares in market history, defying threat after threat from lawmakers and regulators and attorneys, and even soaring in the face of smoking's long decline in America. What now? Is this finally Big Tobacco's big reckoning? Stay with us. Full disclosure is sponsored by Elwood Thompson's, the best market hands down in Virginia. They have the best Indian Wednesdays, the best breakfast. Even sushi chef Jeffrey will hook you up with any sort of role you'd like. Friendly staff, helpful stewards, a food advocate, health coach Lindsay, Chef Todd's recommendations. You can see him and Rick and Molly Hood, the owners around the store. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils, all at the corner of Elwood and Thompson's at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. You can also support this show by going to patreon.com slash radio and signing up as a patron. We are looking to expand the frequency in 2018 to take it on the road, to do all sorts of ambitious things, and maybe even put a man on the moon. Again, patreon.com slash radio. Joining us from San Francisco is Dr. Stanton Glantz, professor of medicine and the director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education at UCSF. Uh, What I love about your bio is it says your work has attracted considerable attention from the tobacco industry, which has sued the University of California unsuccessfully twice in an effort to stop your work. How are you, sir? I'm fine. I'm so glad that I finally uh, snagged you. You're very much in demand in the week since this, what was it, a bombshell announcement from the FDA that they would indeed target nicotine levels in cigarettes. Yes, well, the, the, that was part of a multi-pronged announcement that the FDA made, and it's a sort of good news, bad news announcement, because regulating the levels of nicotine delivered by cigarettes down to non-addictive levels, especially if it was done relatively quickly, could actually prevent a lot of kids from starting to smoke and help a lot of adults quit. The, the downside of what they did is they gave an unconscionable extension to the time before they would actually start regulating e-cigarettes. Um, when the FDA announced that it was taking authority over e-cigarettes last year in 2016, they said that e-cigarettes would have to come into compliance with the law by 2018. They've now pushed that out to 2022, which means they're basically giving away at least a generation of kids. And I I think that's terrible. But the nicotine reduction rule, if it's done, if it's actually done, because, you know, we'll see if it makes it through all the politics and litigation. And if it's done properly, it could be very, very important. Mm. Professor Glantz, I do have this this mind-boggling 
stat to kind of throw at you. And, and this really opened a lot of eyes. Credit Suisse, the Wall Street firm, comes out with an investing, I guess, an almanac, an outlook at the beginning of every year. And this one in 2015, everybody was talking about. They looked at the performance of every major American industry from 1900 to 2010. So let's not even talk about the past five years. Uh, but $1 in the average American industry was worth a little more than $38,000 by 2010. So that's an annual return about 10% a year, which is very respectable. Uh, some did far better. A dollar invested in food companies was worth $700,000 by 2010. Let's go to tobacco. $1 invested in tobacco stocks in 1900 was worth $6.3 million by 2010. That's 165 times greater than the average industry. I'm quoting the story that was on CNN Money. Uh, During a century of innovation, progress, excitement, and scientific advancement, no industry did better than cigarettes. Well, I'm not at all surprised because the tobacco companies are selling a highly addictive product. They've been a tremendously innovative industry. They basically invented modern mass marketing and modern public relations. And the technology of the cigarette it has evolved and been developed to where cigarettes are at least as good and probably better at delivering metered doses of a drug than a lot of pharmaceuticals. Um, so the... The tobacco companies have done very well. The other thing is because nicotine is so addictive, as policies are put in place which drive smoking down because we've had huge successes in getting people to quit smoking and preventing kids from starting, the tobacco companies could just keep raising prices on the remaining addicted smokers to keep their cash flow. See, but this is you. I I know you're not a Wall Street analyst or uh, you know a fund investor and everything in it but if i look at any other industry i'm taking a cdc number from 2015 uh, they noted in their report the percentage of us adults who smoke cigarettes declined from 21% in 2005 to just under 17% in 2014 cigarette smoking was significantly lower in 2014 17% then in 2013 which was closer to 18% any other industry in the world that is being disrupted that way, where it's it's moneymaker in this case, if you look at an Altria or a Reynolds, it's still the traditional, quote unquote, analog, tar heavy, um, you know, very bad for you, Surgeon General's warning cigarettes. So wh- where else in history have you seen a declining industry that until recently has had all time high stock prices? Well, I think you probably in terms of legal industries, they may they are. I mean, what you've said, they are unique, and that's because they're selling a product that is hugely addictive, and where they can just keep raising the prices on uh, the, the remaining smokers. So as fewer and fewer people smoke, the remaining smokers are being hit harder and harder financially. You know, one of the hypocritical arguments that the tobacco companies make against taxes, because tax increases are one effective policy for reducing smoking. If you raise the price, people buy less. But the the, the industry always uh, talks about, oh, this is preferentially hitting the poor and uh, it's a regressive policy and all of that. But what the tobacco companies do typically when the tax goes up is they quietly raise the wholesale price at the same time in order to, again, maintain their cash flow uh, in the face of declining consumption. And as the better educated uh, 
better off parts of society have continued to reduce their smoking. The tobacco companies have been putting more and more emphasis on targeting poor people, people with mental illness, um, you know, the most vulnerable among us. And then they turn around and use that as a justification to leave them alone because they say poor people are spending a third of their income buying cigarettes, which in some places is true, but it's because they're targeting them and addicting them. Well, tell me, I, this sounds obnoxious, but who still smokes in America? You don't see it on the street as much. I imagine uh, what was not taboo growing up, if I'd be picked up a, a mom in carpool or something, would be chain smoking or, or you'd, 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 you'd right. go home. And, and, and that's just taboo right now. As a father of children, you never see it. You never Look, I live in Richmond, Virginia, which is Tobacco Town, USA. And even here, the people who work at Altria, you would just never see them smoke out in public. I want to know who out there is supporting this industry. Is it, by and large, the poor? Because after all, like a brand like like um, Marlboro, the leading you know aspirational brand in the category, if they keep pushing through price increases, it stands to reason that people are going to drop out out of that um, and and go into a cheaper product. So, what is the buttress that still that still tells you that this is one of the most you know respected investments in the stock market? It has made so many people wealthy, even last week's crash notwithstanding. Well, they're they're targeting poor people. The rate of smoking among people with mental illness is very, very high. It's 40, 50, 60 percent uh, compared to the, you know, 15 or 17 percent in the population as a whole. They target Native Americans, which have, who have much higher smoking rates than the population as a whole. Uh, they go after LGBT. They, they basically go after anybody they think they can get. And as the better off, more educated parts of society uh, change their social norms, as you described, and so, you know, just simply don't want to use the stuff no matter what the tobacco companies do, they're, you know, honing in more and more and more on the most vulnerable people in the, in the society. And they do that through targeted marketing. They do that through giving money to civic organizations that represent these individuals um, as a way to keep them quiet. They do them with things like flavors and menthol. And I mean, the tobacco companies are tremendously sophisticated, both in terms of the products that they design and sell and the way that they market them and and their use of uh, strategic philanthropy and political campaign contributions to try to protect their interests. Well, talk to me, uh, talk to me about strategic philanthropy. I mean, they are they they do like to go out and say that they are some of the most charitable companies out there. You do see that if a if a if a comp- if a product is as ridiculously as profitable as theirs, it almost behooves them to to give out the cash, uh, not just to buy people, but to you know, to, to cover the embarrassment of riches. Give us examples of how they've done this. Because after all, we've been told that marketing was curtailed significantly after the late 90s master settlement agreement with the states. Uh, to not, you know, have Joe Camel in front of schools, to not tout uh, the Marlboro Man as much. So how do you get through that? Well, the strategic philanthropy, and, and here at UCSF, we have about 90 million pages of previously secret internal tobacco industry documents on the Internet. Uh, people come to the UCSF library. You, uh, you could go rummage through them yourself. 
And the tobacco companies don't give money away to organizations because they like them or because they're generous. They, it's a very conscious part of their overall political and public relations strategy to try to maintain um, their profitability. And, uh, you know, one area that's very hot right now is menthol and flavors. Here in San Francisco, about two months ago, the city uh, passed an ordinance to prohibit the sale of flavored and menthol cigarettes. Um, the industry is now forcing a referendum on that uh, law, which shows how important it is. But for years and years and years and years, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was completely in the tobacco industry's pocket, as were many other African American organizations. And it was only, and it was because of the money. And it was only last year, uh, through the efforts of, uh, of, of several African American tobacco control leaders, uh, including a woman named Valerie Yerger, who's a colleague here at UCSF, um, that the NAACP finally said we should get rid of menthol. And menthol is tremendously important because it's um, a, used in the targeted marketing directed at African Americans, women, and kids. And menthol is way more than just a flavor. Um, it actually, it's a local anesthetic, which makes it easier to inhale the cigarette smoke and get it deep into your lungs. It kind of deadens the nerves in your throat. The, it also chemically interacts with nicotine in a way that can increase the addictive hit that you get when smoking a cigarette and so that you can tune the menthol and nicotine simultaneously to maximize addiction. And the effort to get rid of menthol and many of these other flavors is tremendously important. Now, the FDA did try to do that in the 2016 deeming rule where they took jurisdiction over e-cigarettes, cigars, and other tobacco products. And they, in the rule that was submitted to the White House for final approval, there were 17 pages of science justifying, it, it wasn't an outright ban on menthol, but it established a public health standard that would have been tough for the companies to meet. And the Obama White House just chopped that out, which I think was just totally appalling. And uh, especially given that menthol is so important in targeting African-Americans. Now, in the FDA announcement last week, the FDA did say it was going to restart the process to issue a rule on menthol and flavors, and uh, which I think is a very important thing to do. And the real question is, how quickly is that going to move forward? And is the Trump White House going to allow the FDA to act affirmatively on menthol and these flavors in a way that Obama wouldn't? Mm. True or false? I, I, I think I read somewhere several months ago in that huge cross-Atlantic merger you saw, was it British Atlantic Tobacco and, and Reynolds here, which I believe is the parent of Newport cigarettes, um, yes. that that was the big target, that they were looking at that. I mean, one of the one of the most valuable smokers in the world remains the African-American menthol smoker. Right. That's, that's exactly right. And in fact, R.J. Reynolds is at least so far, put up most of the money to try to overturn 
the San Francisco ordinance prohibiting the sale of methyl and other flavored cigarettes. Mm. And that effort so far is being led by Reynolds. Uh, typically, though, the Philip Morris will come in and, uh, you know, we're expecting a gigantic fight here over this ordinance. Uh, but it shows how important it is. I mean, a, a colleague of mine uh, once said that the, the you can measure the effectiveness of your program by the response it provokes. And the fact that the tobacco companies are in a very public way trying to overturn this ordinance shows how important it is. And it shows how with this issue, as with most of tobacco control, the real action is at the community level and the state level. The federal government has always lagged way behind uh, what's going on at the community and state levels on tobacco control. Yeah, talk to me about the state levels, Prof. Um, I, I live here in Virginia where it's ridiculously easy to buy cheap cigarettes, and, and we are a hub of, of uh, cigarette smuggling. You can run the arbitrage, drive up six hours to New York and, and get you know two or three times what you paid for on the black market over there. Uh, I'm surprised that there's such a state-to-state variance and that one state can charge 40 cents a pack in taxes and another one can do you know, upwards of, of $2. You have in your research found well, it's that- higher than that. I mean, in California, finally, it took 33 years, but we just increased the tax by $2. And do you, fi- do you find that that's especially efficacious in, in curbing youth? Well, the, 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 the conventional wisdom among tobacco control people is that taxes are the best way to reduce smoking. But it really depends on how big the taxes are. Uh, probably the single most effective thing you can do to curb smoking is create smoke-free environment policies, smoke-free workplaces, smoke-free restaurants, bars. Uh, casinos, and and then what happens is people voluntarily make their homes smoke-free. And that contributes to the social norm change that you were talking about when you you opened the segment. Um, That's worth, that's equivalent to about a two or three dollar tax in terms of effects on consumption. But certainly big tax increases, uh, you know, raise the price, it's a good thing to do. And I mean, here, but here in California, where we've up until we had a state initiative, which is a direct popular vote to raise the cigarette tax in the last election, uh, we had relatively low taxes. We were 33rd in the nation at 87 cents. And yet the smoking rate here in California is around 10 or 12 percent of the remaining smokers, a third of them aren't even smoking every day, another third are smoking under 10 cigarettes a day. And that was done through a combination of strong policy interventions, particularly clean indoor air and now clean outdoor air. I mean, beaches are smoke-free here. Many cities have smoke-free parks, smoke-free multi-unit housing. There's even a couple of cities where you can't smoke on the street. And, and strong media campaigns educating people about uh, secondhand smoke, nicotine addiction, and the tobacco industry. And so here in California, I think the combined effect of the big price increase uh, that, that has come with the $2 tax and the fact that it's going to about quadruple the size of the state tobacco control program with some of the money, I, I think in four or five years, 
we could be rid of tobacco as a public health problem in California. Full disclosure, we are talking to Professor Stanton Glantz. He directs the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education at UC San Francisco. Um, I do remember this headline uh, last year. It was uh, camel chain smoker John Boehner, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives. He joined the board of Reynolds American, which, after all, you're saying right now is fighting uh, these potential limits on menthol, is trying to push through this, this mega merger with British American tobacco. I mean, there's no shortage of clout up on Capitol Hill. It's almost axiomatic. If you have uh, such a cash flow heavy industry with such an embarrassment of riches, there are so many vested interests in it. Right, right. And in fact, Boehner uh, is a longtime major recipient of campaign contributions from the tobacco industry. And in fact, I'm not positive, but I, I think uh, if, if they weren't his largest single contributor, they were way up there. And that is how the tobacco industry maintains its power. It's all about politics. You know, if a Martian came down to Earth today and said, I have this great new product that's going to kill half a million people a year, that's going to addict kids and ruin their lives, that's going to be preferentially marketed, to the most vulnerable in the population. Let's go do it. Uh, People would probably say, are you out of your mind? But the tobacco industry is kind of a historical anomaly. It got got going in the early 20th century uh, before people really understood how dangerous the product was. And it's just deeply embedded itself in the political and cultural structure of the United States. And, uh, uh, you know, they make a lot of campaign contributions to a lot of important politicians. And that's the primary way that they've continued to have this preferential treatment that they get. The reason that local action is so important and been so effective in dealing with the industry is because unlike people in Congress or people in state state legislatures who generally were kind of out of the public eye and were lobbyists and campaign contributors speak quite loudly. When you get down to the city level, you know, people can actually show up at public hearings at city councils and county councils. And while the local politicians like campaign contributions as much as anybody else, having a bunch of irritated neighbors after them to do something uh, is something that they're just much more sensitive to than people at higher levels of government. And, and that's why, if, if you look back historically, most of the progress on tobacco came at the community level and then bubbled up to the state level and ultimately um, a little bit federally. To these points, I want to talk about innovation. All of their websites, uh, the the incumbent tobacco companies, they they talk a lot about their desire to uh, seek out smoking cessation techniques. I mean, I was visiting with a an activist in D.C. who presented me with this. Uh, what is it called? Icos, I Q O S, like yeah. heated heated tobacco solution that Philip Morris International is jointly developing with Altria, which is the parent of Philip Morris USA. Right. It's going to be less harmful in that you're not smoking per se, but you're sucking in heated tobacco. Does innovation, this is this is a huge question, I know it's loaded, does innovation move the needle for these guys to the extent that if I look at the income statement now at a 
largely a pure play tobacco company like an Altria. It does have a division that sells wine, but it's not a big part of the income statement. It does get some cash flow from a beer business it divested. It sold off the baked goods and, and food business. Tobacco, cigarette smoking moves the needle for this company, but is any sort of innovation or R&D uh, you're getting any sort of pressure from Wall Street to kind of say, you know what, guys, uh, the writing's on the wall. There aren't more smokers. You're going to be in single-digit rates soon, and, and the people are only going to die out. Well, first of all, the tobacco companies are very innovative and have been for a very, very long time. Uh, if you look at a cigarette today, it's nothing like a cigarette from 1950. If the, if the tobacco companies started marketing cigarettes made the way they were in 1950, probably nobody would smoke them. And in fact, one thing the FDA could do is just simply say to the companies, we want you to sell the same kind of cigarettes you sold in 1950. Because the companies have made all kinds of very significant high-tech changes to the product to make the smoke easier to inhale, to reduce the particle size in the smoke so that it gets deeper into your lungs and delivers the nicotine more effectively and by incidentally causes a different kind of lung cancer than it used to. They, the use of flavors, the use of additives, the, the fact that they tune the menthol levels with uh, the nicotine levels. I mean, met, there, there are menthol brands out there, but menthol is in almost all cigarettes. Uh, as a way to modulate the addictive potential. They put little microscopic, tiny little holes in the filters in order to regulate the dilution of the smoke. They um, vary the, the tobacco mix, they, the density with which they put the tobacco in the rod, the porosity of the paper, how fast the paper burns. I mean, there's a million things that have been ultra-fine-tuned in cigarettes to maximize their addictive potential. So, you know, innovation is, and in fact, the tobacco companies, Philip Morris in particular, had invented something very much like a modern e-cigarette about 20 years ago and simply decided not to take it to market for, because uh, of political reasons and they, because they were afraid if they did it might trigger FDA regulation of conventional cigarettes. So these changes that they're making are responses largely to political and regulatory pressures. Now the ICOS uh, is a new product. It, it's, a, it's, it's sort of like, um, oh, um, uh, well, it looks, like an I, it looks like an iPhone. It looks really fashionable. It looks like something you'd yeah, plug into oh yeah. a USB. No, they're also like the world's best marketers, too. But the way it works is they have this, it's kind of like fiberboard, or, uh, or where they've ground up the tobacco and mixed it with a bunch of other chemicals. And they create these sticks, which uh, what they call heat sticks. And then you put it in a little device that warms it up or heats it up. And then that generates the air, uh, an aerosol of ultrafine particles that carry the nicotine into your lungs. It's, it's in many ways quite similar to an e-cigarette, which heats up a liquid in order to generate an aerosol of ultrafine particles that carries the nicotine into your lungs. And the idea of both e-cigarettes and the ICOS product is because you don't actually burn the tobacco <laughs> 
you don't get all of the carcinogenic combustion products. The problem is that you still get these ultrafine particles. I mean, the, the way a cigarette works is you burn the tobacco to generate an aerosol of ultrafine particles that carries the smoke deep into your lungs where the nicotine is absorbed and then goes straight from your lungs to your left heart to your brain in a few seconds. And you get a big blast of nicotine, which is a very addictive way to deliver it. The e-cigarette and the iCoast do that through heating up uh, a, a nicotine mixture. The problem is that the, those ultrafine particles are themselves tremendously dangerous. Um, they're so small that they can actually go through walls. They go right into your blood, right into your cells. They trigger inflammatory processes, and they're related to causing heart disease, heart attacks, and non-cancer lung disease. So while the e-cigarettes and ICOs probably are going to cause less cancer than a conventional cigarette does. The fact is cancer only kills about a third of the smokers. And the evidence that's emerging on e-cigarettes is that they're probably as bad or almost as bad in terms of heart disease and heart attacks and non-cancer lung disease as conventional cigarettes are. And while, you know, the, the ICOS hasn't been around long enough, for people outside Philip Morris to study it, but my guess is it's going to be the same way. Mm. But but the reality is, I mean, the, the Philip Morris keeps saying, well, we want to get out of the conventional cigarette business. We support a smoke-free society, blah, blah, blah. Well, if they wanted to get out of the cigarette business, they could do it. They would just stop selling cigarettes. And there's many precedents in other industries where a product was shown to be very dangerous, where the companies just stopped selling it. And, you know, what we have now, the positioning that Philip Morris and the other tobacco companies are saying, it's like saying, well, we have a car where the brakes don't work. Um, and then we have this new car that has brakes that, that kind of work. And so we're going to keep both on the market and let the consumer decide. And by the way, the car with the, with the brakes that don't work is a lot more profitable for us than the ones where the brakes do work. So I think if Philip Morris was serious with all of this rhetoric they have about wanting to be part of the solution and wanting to get out of, you know, be, be, put the co conventional combustion cigarette in the past, they have the total power to do that. They don't need the FDA to do that. They could just say we're going to stop making this product. Mm. Now, what about the FDA? In, in, in a perfect world, what do you think the FDA would do? I mean, we understand that, that, that it, was a, it was a struggle for them to get the right to regulate nicotine in the first place. It was a struggle for the industry to admit that nicotine is addictive in the first place. Why isn't the industry, why isn't the FDA uh, at the behest of the CDC or the World Health Organization or anyone else, just allowed to target a product, and I'm being naive deliberately to kind of understand the counterfactual here. If it if it if it's used as directed and it kills you, we're going to regulate it. We're going to ban it. I mean, why is that verboten? Well, it's politics. You know, if you go look at the at the 2009 law that gave the FDA jurisdiction over tobacco. Uh, it specifically prohibits the FDA from, re, you know, 
banning the sale of cigarettes or requiring that nicotine be removed from cigarettes. I mean, there have been nicotine-free cigarettes that have been put on the market by several of the companies, I think including Philip Morris, and people just didn't buy them because why would you inhale this disgusting uh, smoke uh, in order to just poison yourself without getting the addictive hit that you get from nicotine. So the way the law, and the law is written and, and the ability of the FDA to implement the law are all constrained by politics. Um, you know, Obama uh, wouldn't let them move forward uh, on uh, regulating menthol. There was a huge fight in 2009 when the original law was passed uh, to exclude menthol from the banned flavors in conventional cigarettes. Um, the compromise back then was that the FDA would do a report on the public health benefits of banning menthol. Uh, they had a year to do it. Uh, they killed themselves and managed to meet that deadline, which was rare. I know several of the people who worked on it. It was very, very hard because they had a huge scientific literature to absorb. And they said it would be pub a public health benefit to remove menthol from tobacco products. The tobacco companies sued. They, for a while, they had a court telling FDA it couldn't do it. Then the FDA prevailed, but Obama wouldn't let them do it. They would not. And, and then later, uh, the e-cigarette deeming rule again, took from 2009 to 2016 because the White House kept sitting on the FDA and just not letting it do its job. Mm. Is there I mean, the, 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 the thing that's kind of amazing about what just happened last week is that if you look at the Trump administration's overall record on the environment, health, and safety, they're the most retrograde administration that, that, you know, that I can ever remember. I mean, they're rolling back health and safety and environmental rules that Richard Nixon put in place. Uh, but they have allowed the FDA to move forward, at least to begin the process on nicotine regulation, which, you know, I think is, it, it's, it's, uh, quite remarkable given the overall context of the current administration. Now, there, there's a long way between what got announced on uh, on Friday and actually doing something. They've got to go through a whole complicated rulemaking process, and the de the details of how this nicotine regulation, if it if there is one, are constructed, are going to be very very important. But one thing we do know from some very high-quality research that the FDA has, uh, has sponsored over the last few years is that if they did dial back the allowed nicotine delivery in cigarettes, that can be done quickly and that it would lead people to stop smoking. So, Well, let me, let me ask you, though. Wouldn't it cause people just to smoke more cigarettes to get the same fix? Well, that's been the big question. And in fact, if you uh, oh wait or or right now to freebase very readily available um, uh, nicotine potions, which you can get in any store. There are thousands of merchants. It's not very regulated. In fact, as you explained to us earlier, this move by the FDA effectively puts off that regulation of e-cigarettes. So it's again right. another form of, of it's almost like freebasing nicotine. It's nicotine well, arbitrage. It is, well, cigarettes are actually freebasing nicotine. 
but the well, so you've asked a couple of different questions, so let me take them one at a time. The this issue it's of what's called smoker compensation, that is you reduce the nicotine delivery of the cigarette and people end up smoking more or more heavily or inhaling more deeply. And historically, that has been the, the problem with these reduced nicotine cigarettes. And in fact, the reason it's the problem is because the, the tobacco companies very consciously design the cigarettes in order to promote smoker compensation. That fact was a key element in getting the FDA law passed in the first place. And it was the reason that a federal court found that the tobacco companies were racketeers in violation of the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act. And the way that the tobacco companies promote smoker compensation gets back to these things I was talking about earlier, about how they engineer the cigarette to do that. So that's been a tremendous concern about lowering nicotine levels. What the FDA uh, did over the last few years is sponsored uh, several very, very high-quality research studies where smokers were given cigarettes that actually lowered the nicotine delivery and did not use all of the tricks that the tobacco companies used to promote smoker compensation. And in those cigarettes, which are different kinds of cigarettes that are commercially available, what they found is that they can bring the level of nicotine down very quickly over a period of, of, of a couple of weeks and the, the smokers did not compensate, they actually smoked less and some of them even quit. So if, the, if done properly, this policy could have a tremendously positive public health impact. But there's also lots of ways they could do it wrong. For example, they could just tell the tobacco companies, we want you to lower the nominal nicotine deliveries that they're delivered to smoking machines and not prevent them from using the technologies that they use to promote smoker compensation. So I think if three or four years ago, this was a live, very controversial question about whether you even could lower the nicotine levels effectively. But I think now that question has been answered. If you do it right, you can do it. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Professor Stanton Glantz at University of California, San Francisco, where he directs the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education. In the few minutes we have left, sir, uh, Doc, <laughs> I'd like to ask you about this impending mega merger that's being bandied about on Wall Street between uh, Philip Morris USA, which is Altria, and its, its international cousin, Philip Morris International, which it broke off from, I think, a decade plus ago. We were always told because they are the ones that do the nefarious things overseas. They're the ones that market to kids in Indonesia outside of schools. I mean, you saw that John Oliver diatribe against Philip Morris International a couple of years ago. Um, how would this look? Why would why would kind of regulation-sensitive American big tobacco want to take in its its kind of wicked cousin? Well, the the reason that Philip Morris spun Philip Morris International off some years ago was driven by litigation concerns. There were, there were a lot of lawsuits running against the tobacco companies, and they were trying in the United States, and they wanted to insulate the assets of their international division. Now, the litigation is continuing, and the tobacco companies are generally losing, 
But I think they just made a decision that that's become manageable for them and they want to bring the merger back together. There's a whole lot of reasons from a business efficiency point of view where having those two companies run as a consolidated company make a lot of sense to them. Uh, the tobacco companies really do operate globally. Philip Morris, uh, before they uh, spun off uh, Philip Morris International, had a division called Worldwide Regulatory Affairs, Worldwide Scientific Affairs, and they managed their U.S. activities as part of the global context. And I think that, that they made a decision that they would just be more economically and politically powerful um, to go back to the way they used to be. You know, in the early 90s, Philip Morris actually seriously did think of getting out of the tobacco business. That was one of the reasons they renamed the parent company Altria. But in the end, they just decided they could just make too much money. And so there's, you know, they moved in the opposite direction, which was more and more and more to emphasize their core tobacco business. Now, as we know in the past with, with, the, with the state attorney's agreement, and full disclosure, I did work on that in the, in the White House as an intern exactly 20 summers ago. Um, yeah. The version that came out was very different from, from what the Clinton administration had gotten together with the state attorneys general to prepare. But ultimately, the states did sign up on that. And, and the big question I have in closing is, how do you as a state regulator right now, how do you balance well, we know that Medicaid expenditures are linked to the smoking rate, and we have people in hospices, people who are significant drains on Medicare, well, Medicaid, which is which is state-sensitive later in life, uh, but they're also getting a tremendous amount of promise revenue uh, from the tobacco companies as part of this agreement. So how do you, as a state regulator, come out there and roll up your sleeves and say, um, you know, I want to regulate these industries, but not in the way that I'm going to jeopardize the revenue coming to my state. Oh, well, that's easy. The, the, the money that the states get in both payments from the master settlement agreement and also collected tobacco taxes, there's just a fraction of what smoking costs them. And there's just no question that if you could snap your fingers and be rid of the tobacco industry, uh, that where the states lost all of the master settlement payments and the um, the tobacco taxes they're getting, they would financially be way better off, way 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 better off. Like here in California, um, where we've had a very strong state-funded tobacco control program going back to 1988. Uh, over the years, uh, the program has cost three or four billion dollars. And it saved about $170 billion in medical costs. And uh, the, at the height of the Great Recession, when, when the state was running huge deficits, probably the state deficit would have been 3 or $4 billion higher had we not had the low smoking rates that we do. So, I mean, the tobacco companies have a, have a, you know, they fight tobacco taxes, but they actually, at, at another level, kind of like them because they can keep the states addicted to that money. Hmm. But, no, at there, the, there's just no question that even from, from a, just a strict, limited financial point of view, we would be better off without tobacco. And, um, you know, another thing that's very, very important, and this is highly relevant to things like e-cigarettes and 
and the heat not burn products, which most likely do cause heart attacks, that the first change that you see when you reduce smoking is fewer people having heart attacks. And you, you don't have to prevent very many heart attacks to save a ton of money. The FDA, by not regulating e-cigarettes and, and delaying the regulation of e-cigarettes so long, the FDA is implicitly saying, we're going to try to switch people from conventional cigarettes to e-cigarettes on the grounds that they're safer. The problem with that is they're probably not that much safer than cigarettes. And so you're, you're trying to ship people from a ridiculously dangerous product to just a very dangerous product. Moreover, smokers who use e-cigarettes are actually less likely to quit smoking than smokers who don't use e-cigarettes. So e-cigarettes are having the effect of holding up or maintaining the conventional cigarette market. And finally, e-cigarettes, because they're viewed as high-tech and new and modern and innovative and flavored and all this, are tremendously attractive to kids. And in fact, um, e-cigarette use among kids is now higher than conventional cigarette use. And getting kids addicted to nicotine is a bad thing. Moreover, kids who start use with e-cigarettes are three or four times more likely to go on to nicotine cigarettes within a year. So I, I think that if the FDA was really serious about its comprehensive nicotine strategy, they should be driving down the nicotine deliveries in non-combusted cigarette products at the same time that they're driving it down in combusted cigarette products. So they don't just take people and move them from a more profitable, dangerous tobacco product to a slightly less profitable, dangerous tobacco product. Dr. Glantz, director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education at UCSF, I cannot thank you enough, good sir. Oh, thank you for your interest. Full disclosure, you can catch our show on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Support us by going to Patreon.com slash FullDRadio and becoming a patron of this fine broadcast so that we can increase our frequency into 2018. We are on Acast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all fine podcatchers everywhere. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Music